Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of Pretty Much Obsessed, the podcast for new comic book readers by newish comic book readers. Uh, this week on the show, we're going to be talking about what books we read this week, uh, as well as some recommendations for brand new readers. Uh, we're going to go in-depth with a spoiler-filled discussion on Vote Loki number three and Red Hood and the Outlaws number one, and then we're going to have a topics discussion about the X-Men and what happened to them. My name is Dalton. And my name is Chris. And welcome to Pretty Much Obsessed. I'm going crazy because real life sucks And I quit my job because I hate it so much But I got new books and like they're the best So let's talk about them because I'm pretty much obsessed Pretty much obsessed Pretty much obsessed Pretty much obsessed Woo! Man, that All intro. Right. Oh, so good by... The legendary, the man, no. the myth, the legend, what? Chris Trubeck oh, himself. Stop it. It's too much. Making me, <laughs> making me red in the face. It's not enough. It's never enough. Uh, welcome to Pretty Much Obsessed. Uh, Chris, how was your uh, two weeks? It's been two weeks since we met to record one I of these. I know. It's been so long, and I feel like there aren't half as many books out that weren't out before. Like I thought there was going to be a lot more stuff, but it doesn't feel like there's really been that much. It's kind of been a light two weeks for comic books. And I guess that's because know? we had a fifth week. Is that is that the correct? Yeah, yeah. We had a last week was a fifth week comic book month. So last week especially was kind of light. Um, but this week too, I actually I think I read fewer books this week than last week. But uh, yeah. I, you know, uh, things will pick up again. Uh, I'm sure the rest of the month will be packed uh, with some new stuff. Uh, anything else you've been obsessing over these last couple of weeks before we get into the books? I am really excited about Deathstroke being in the new uh, solo Batman movie. That's been confirmed now. Was that was that announced? It was. So Ben Affleck actually teased some what looked like screen test footage of Deathstroke in costume, like moving around on set and so forth. And then I think sometime just in the last couple of days, it was fully confirmed because nobody knew which movie it was actually for. Uh, right. So now Jeff Johns has confirmed that it's for the Batman solo film, which rumor has it it's going to be titled The Batman. And uh, apparently he's being played by Joe Manganiello, who's... Oh, yeah, from uh, ev- who our watchers will know from the brand new Pee Wee Herman movie, uh, Pee Wee's Big Holiday. Oh, okay. All right. Nice. <laughs> I didn't really know him from anything, so... I think he. I think people mostly know him actually from like True Blood or Vampire Diaries or one of those type of shows. But he was also in the Pee Wee movie. I actually found <clears throat> in my research because I do research uh, mm-hmm. that he played Flash Thompson in Spider Man, the original one. Oh, nice! Yeah, nice. The Tobey Maguire one. Yeah, very cool. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, now, Deathstroke is a villain. Is that right? More hero? or less, he's a villain. Sometimes, kind of an anti-hero. Okay. Do we have confirmation that he is the primary villain? Because no. one of the things that I noticed with like Civil War is that we're, there were all these images teasing, um, oh, uh, why can't, uh, Crossbones, you know, uh, and then it turned out like Crossbones was just in that kind of opening scene uh, before he got killed. Um, or like that so time I, when they kept uh, showing us Joker footage for Suicide Squad, and then Joker. Oh yeah, I, I guess that's a better example. Wasn't in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it was just in like a scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, actually, what I'm hoping is that he'll have kind of a secondary villain role. Like, here's what I would be my ideal way that mm-hmm. they set this up, is that Deathstroke actually is just sort of a hired mercenary, because that's what Deathstroke does. He, he okay. accepts money and kills whoever you want him to kill. He doesn't really have, 
much of an agenda other than just to kill people for money. And he has a strong mm-hmm. moral code in that once he takes on a contract, he will fulfill that contract at basically any cost. And he is known to be the most effective, most reliable mercenary in the DC universe. So what I'm kind of hoping is that he plays a, a pivotal role in the film, but that he's not actually the primary antagonist. And I think there's a good chance we'll see the Joker as primary antagonist in, in this film. But maybe yeah. they'll kind of like keep showing us Deathstroke and wait sort of until like the end of the movie for the big reveal that it's been Joker the whole time or something like that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. But I mean, it way, seems like he's he's a good moral foil for Batman. You know, they both yeah. have sort of their codes and their mission, and, yeah. but they're sort of in conflict with each other. And they're both really skilled hand to hand combatants. Generally, people say that Deathstroke is actually better than Batman. Okay, but Batman is perhaps more resourceful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's going to be really fun to see them go head to head, and I've seen a lot of excitement about it. It's it's not just me, so I think everybody's pretty happy, and the the footage that was uh, released, kind of teased from Ben Affleck, looks great. So cool. That's one cool thing. Uh, did you see the Rogue One trailer, the latest one? I I I have. Yeah, I'm real excited for this movie. I feel like all I can think about is I want more Darth Vader. Well, he's supposed to be in it. Yeah, but every time they... I don't know how much he's in it. They've dropped, I think, two trailers now, and the whole time I'm watching the trailer, like, where is he? Where's Darth <laughs> Vader? And then... Well, you know, they probably want to save him. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. I'm just excited to see kind of the darker side of, like, the Star Wars, like, sort of, like, the war side of things yeah. a little bit yeah. more. Uh, it seems like a cool kind of supplement to the core series uh it's kind of like it's kind of exploring stuff that a lot of the you know like the spin-off novels and uh comic books have kind of engaged in but this time with like a huge budget and uh it looks like to be kind of a really cool spectacle and that's what people are saying is is that this movie is going to be very dark especially relative to the other star wars films Especially, there's been rumors that they had to do some reshoots, actually, because it was too dark. Oh, wow. Um, so well, we all know how that, that goes. goes. Yeah, Cough, that, that always works squad. out well. Yeah. Uh, so. But yeah, I've heard that Darth Vader is supposed to just be absolutely brutal in this movie. Nice. So I I want that. Please give it to me. <laughs> Don't reshoot it. Just, I'm sure it's fine the way it is. <laughs> Shut up and take my money. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Um... Should we get into uh, maybe some of the books from yeah. this week that we yeah. read? Let's go into um, our, our first proper segment. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to talk about some of the books we liked actually over these last two weeks because it's been two weeks since we have had a show. Um, and we're going to try to give a couple recommendations for new comic book readers or people looking to pick up maybe some extra titles and want to know where they can jump in. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'll start. Um, this week, I would say, uh, this is, this is going to sound crazy, but one of my favorite books uh, of these last two weeks, and I think the best jumping on point for a new reader, is going to be, drumroll, Jughead number nine, <laughs> uh, which I know sounds crazy, especially because when I first got into comics, I had a friend who was a big comic book fan who loved Archie Comics, and I was like, are you kidding me? Because all I thought about was like, the digests you would get in the grocery store checkout line. I used to buy those. I'm not going to lie. Oh yeah. Oh, me too. But like the idea of reading them as an adult, like 
was, was crazy to me. Um, but what I have come to find out is that while, while Archie Comics still does publish these kind of digest things, they have branched out into like actual uh, more uh, adult comic books. Um, or maybe they always have, I don't know. Uh, but that started really in earnest last year with Mark Wade's reboot of Archie, uh, which was then followed up by Jughead. Um, and if you are a new reader who is looking for a really great comic book that is not superheroes, uh, I can't recommend Jughead enough. It's written by Ryan North, who some of you may know from Dinosaur Comics, which is an online web comic that was very popular for a long time, featuring like clip art of dinosaurs and like uh, little text blocks. Uh, but then he went on to write Adventure Time um, and uh, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. I do love. He- I love Adventure Time. Yeah, it, I mean, if you love the kind of humor of Adventure Time, like I like Jughead is great. Um, it's very sort of weird and silly, while uh, still like really exploring like the friendship of these characters in a really real way. Uh, but but it's um, it's very funny. This this issue is about. Uh, Jughead, who has always sort of been kind of an asexual character, he's never really been interested in ladies the way that Archie is, uh, develops a crush on a burger mascot at Pop's uh, chocolate shop. Um, this girl that like dresses as a, as a burger uh, and hands out flyers. Um, and he gets a crush on her and asks her out. And then when he finally meets her and sees her without the burger costume, finds that maybe he's not as interested anymore. Um, and I won't reveal who ends up being in the burger costume because it is kind of a twist at the end. Uh, although I think most of the cover images sort of spoil it anyway. But uh, it is a very, very funny uh, read, whether you're an adult uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, if you are interested in recommending, if you have kids or nieces or something you want to get into comic books. Ryan North really excels at writing truly all ages comic books that adults will think are very, very funny and kids can enjoy too. So I can't recommend Jughead enough. All right. I, I can't say that you haven't piqued my interest. It's, it's good. Just if, if you're skeptical, just read issue number nine. It's a perfect jumping off point. You don't need to know anything that happened from Chip Zdarsky's run prior, although it was very, very good. And I recommend those issues as well. Um, but you can easily jump in on number nine. Um, if you going to the superhero side of things, um, daredevil number 11, uh, this week is really fantastic. Although if you want to jump in fresh, I would recommend starting with number 10. Uh, this daredevil series has been returning to kind of the dark tone kind of set by the Netflix show. Um, and this one, this arc currently is about, um, a killer who is making work, works of art using his victim's blood and uh, body parts and stuff like that. So it's very dark, very gruesome, um, but very well written and kind of noir in in the best kind of Daredevil way. Um, the only thing you really need to know prior to issue 10 is that Daredevil has a new sidekick called Blindspot, who is an Asian-American superhero from Chinatown who can make himself invisible using this tech suit that he has. Um, which makes him powerless against Daredevil because, of course, Daredevil's blind anyway, uh, but makes them really great partners. Um, but number 10 kicks off this new story arc? 10 kicks off this story arc and 11 continues it. Um, 
you can go back to the beginning if you want, but if you're looking for just a couple issues to see if you like it, I recommend Daredevil number 10 and 11. Uh, the story arc hasn't wrapped up yet, but it's been very, very promising. So if you like sort of uh, the darker, more gritty side of superheroes, uh, I Daredevil, uh, I recommend. You know, um, I am finally getting on the Daredevil Netflix bandwagon. It's taken me oh, long nice. enough, but I've been uh, watching it. Yeah, I'm thoroughly enjoying that show. So I may actually. How far have, are you? Uh, just, <laughs> just a couple episodes in the first okay. season. Okay. I want to get caught up on it, and I've been meaning to for a long time. It's just now it's to the point that it's so daunting because there's so many episodes and they're all an hour long, and you know. Yeah. I'm a busy guy. Got a lot of books. To I've read, always so. called it though the Batman TV show that we have deserved. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's very sort of, you know, that it, it has a Batman vibe to it. And uh, and so I thought you would like it. It does. Yeah, I know what you mean by that. Yeah, I'm enjoying that. So, um, And I think the last recommendation I'm going to give is uh, actually one that we're going to be going in depth in uh, later in the episode. But Red Hood and the Outlaws, number one. Uh, Chris told me to read this one. Uh, he was a big fan of it. And so, uh, we were going to go in depth on it and I read it and it's fantastic. I'm not going to give any spoilers or go super in depth because we're going to do that later in the episode. And you read the, you also read the rebirth issue, right? I also read the rebirth issue. Was, was it, but you know was what? it not completely worth reading? It was definitely worth reading. I started with the number one though. Oh, okay. Uh, and as someone who doesn't know any of these characters. I don't know Jason Todd. I didn't know he was Robin. I didn't know anything about him. Um, I went into the number one totally blind, and I was instantly caught up. I knew everything that was going on, and I greatly enjoyed the story. Uh, The rebirth issue is very worth it, uh, but if for some reason you can't find it, um, I was able to jump into the number one and uh, understand what was happening. So, Okay. so Red Hood and the Outlaws, you've got the Rebirth issue, and then Red Hood and the Outlaws number one, so two issues to catch up on. Um, it looks, it seems very, very promising, very well written, and is exploring sort of a side of the Batman universe that I didn't know about, but I'm already very interested in. That's great. I'm glad you like it because I, that would be on my list too. If I, I was gonna, I was trying not to put any recommendations on my list that are the books we're already going to be going in depth on, but definitely can't. I wasn't planning on it. Can't, can't recommend Red Hood and the Outlaws strongly enough. I mean, even though there's only two issues right now, if you count the rebirth issue already, I can see like, I, I love this character and I love the direction that, that it's going in right now. Um, Scott Lopdell is doing a great job. Yeah. And he's, he's writing it very well, very engaging. it's, It's beautiful. The art is beautiful. Art is really fantastic. And it's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, okay, we'll go more into that in the next segment. But yeah, um, that was all your recommendations? Um, I'm just going to give a quick shout-out without going into details. Uh, if you have, if you want to do a little catching up to do, some of my favorite books from these last two weeks were Miss Marvel number 10, Doctor Strange number 11, and Batman number 6. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I'll hand it off to you for uh, what did you read this week. Okay, Batman number 6 was really good this week. Got yeah. to see some of Gotham Girl flying around, kind of, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil exactly what she's doing, but just read it. Go read it. If you haven't been reading Batman up to now, it's being written by Tom King, who's a former CIA agent. It's incredible. And at the end of this latest issue, he has teased some really excellent upcoming story kind of plot points that are, I think are going to be amazing with some really classic members of the Batman rogues gallery. Go yeah. check it out. It's great. It's deep. It's gritty. It explores the Batman mythos and the 
quirks and nuances of his character in such intimate and satisfying ways. So can't really can't really yeah. overstate how much I've been enjoying that one. I would say if you are a Batman fan, please jump on the series before it gets too late. You know, you don't want to be jumping in on this on number 20 and having to do a bunch of catch up. Right now you've only got one arc and actually this is a pretty good jumping on point even if you didn't read it. Uh, but if you like Batman, get on this now cuz it's it's going to be a big one. Absolutely. I also read Suicide Squad War Crimes number 1, which I'm not entirely clear on where they're going with that. As in, I don't know if this is an entirely separate Suicide Squad series or if this was kind of a one-shot thing. That was not clear to me. But in any case, I did not, I was not crazy about it on my first reading, but I read it again last night and realized there's a lot to enjoy there. Uh, The story actually makes sense, again, which I kind of said this about the last Suicide Squad that we talked about, the, the main series. Uh, and the the mission that they get sent on makes a lot of sense, and it's it's pretty deep. It gets a little hard to follow at times, but that's because they're having them deal with real geopolitical issues mm-hmm. and things that you would expect them to send a covert black ops team of supervillains to do if they were you know if you were this shady government official like Amanda Waller is things that you know they would have them do. I'm not going to give away too much of what they're sent to do, but basically they have to go into a foreign country to retrieve a former U.S. official, the, the former Secretary of Defense, and mm-hmm. retrieve him before he can be tried for war crimes that would reveal a lot of sensitive classified information to the world. So they, they send in the Suicide Squad to go grab him. Is it the same crew as from the Suicide Squad ongoing that we uh, talked about last week? It is with the absence of the Enchantress and Killer Croc. Okay. And they add in another character called Mad Dog. Okay. But Captain Boomerang is there, Harley Quinn, Deadshot, El Diablo. They're all there. Uh, We didn't really get enough Deadshot. I always want more Deadshot, and it (laughs) seems like we just haven't been... I have not been getting my dead shot fix lately. You got your uh, extra dead shot in the ongoing number one. That's we talked true. about that last week. That's true. That dead shot origin bit at the end of Suicide Squad number one, was it? Uh, yeah, that was number one. Yeah, that was great. But Boomerang really shines in this. This guy is just dirt nasty. He is just a bad dude. And we get to see him doing what he does best, which is just being a jerk. Um, so I liked it. And then I also read Deathstroke number one, which if you're new, you know, this is such a great time to be jumping in on these DC titles because they are all rebooted right now. So there are not very many of any of them. Deathstroke in particular, there's only two issues right now. If you count the rebirth issue, it's not anything that's blowing me away right now, but there are some really cool geopolitical uh, plot things going on where Deathstroke is kind of interfering with U.S. politics and thing, foreign affairs and so forth, and he's got this little kid on the computer that works for him and helps him do all this kind of shady stuff behind the scenes, and he's got his hands in some really sticky situations going on, and that's all I'm going to say about it because I don't want to spoil it, but there yeah. also is a pretty classic uh, DC villain that's brought in. Not anybody amazing like Bane or... or joker or anything like that but somebody who's kind of fun to play with uh going on in deathstroke right now so enjoying that one Uh, and i would recommend it 
One thing I wanted to, to bring up since uh, for, for new readers that we do have listening is one thing that you kind of touched on, which is that right now is a great time to get into DC books, and that's because of this thing that's going on called Rebirth. Right. Um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, I, without explaining all the continuity stuff that's happening, essentially most of the titles, the DC titles, have been relaunched, uh, starting with something called a Rebirth book, which is sort of like uh, a single issue uh, giving sort of a background for the series that's about to come. Uh, and then the the series is starting proper with a number one. So like when we talk about Deathstroke or Red Hood, there's a rebirth issue, which is a lot of background stuff. And then the series proper starts with a number one issue. Um, so the rebirth issue comes first uh, before you read the number one. Uh, Marvel, it's not a great time to jump on because they relaunched everything last fall. And so right now, a lot of things are in kind of the number 10 to number 12 issue kind of range. Uh, uh, so with some exceptions being like Daredevil, which have a good sort of arc jumping on point, um, it's tough right now to jump in on Marvel, but that's all going to change in the next month or two because they are uh, Marvel's on this schedule where every year they sort of relaunch a lot of their titles. Um, so in the next few episodes, we're going to be probably talking about a lot of Marvel number one issues, and I'll give my recommendations on which ones are worth checking out. I was going to also say it's not a bad time to get into Vote Loki because there's not very many issues. but Only three issues on Vote Loki. Which you, we're gonna you also about. mentioned it's probably not going very much longer. Yeah, I, I don't know if we know how many issues it's going to be, but I would imagine imagine only four to six. Okay. Uh, we've had three so far, uh, but I think it's going to be a pretty limited series. Okay. Yeah. Um, any other recommendations, or is that that your uh, your list for this week? That will do it for me. Okay, so in that case, uh, we're going to move on to segment two, uh, which is our in-depth discussion of a couple of books. We're, we're going to each pick one book uh, per episode to kind of go in-depth on. This will have spoilers, so if you don't want spoilers uh, for Vote Loki number three and Red Hood and the Outlaws number one, uh, fast forward this um, a certain amount of time until we get to our topic section, uh, or just pause, go read those books and then hit play again. Ooh, I like that. Um, I like that option. Yeah. Option B. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about these a little in depth. Uh, what book do you want to start with? Let's do Red Hood. I'm, I'm just yeah. bursting with excitement for Red Hood yeah, right now. We are, we talked about this a little bit. I actually just read this this morning because I had a busy week and I, I didn't have time to catch up a lot of stuff, but I knew this was on our list. So I went and I read Red Hood number one, and then I went back and read the Rebirth issue. Um, and I talked about it earlier. I think it's, it's fantastic. It's probably, it's one of the DC books I'm most invested in, probably this in Batman right now. Uh, but you're the one that recommended it. So why don't you tell me, uh, what made you recommend it and what you're liking about it as someone that knows Jason Todd and knows these characters better than I do. All right. Well, yeah. So first off, let me just give kind of an overview for people who may not know the history here, but Jason Todd was like me. Yeah. Jason Todd was the second Robin. He came on board after Dick Grayson left to become Nightwing and kind of go do his own thing as almost like a second Batman taking over Bloodhaven, which is a neighboring city to Gotham. Do you know when this was that they introduced Jason Todd, like year-wise? Was this 90s, 2000s? Do you know by chance? I don't know exactly. It was. That's okay. I was, it was just curious. It, it's been a long time. Okay. I want to say like 70s, but I'm honestly not, okay. I'm honestly not sure. I just didn't know if he was a recent character or if his story goes a long way back. Yeah, he's old. He's he's old school. Okay. Uh, 
so he came on, he was basically this kind of little street rat kid who was thugging around, stealing stuff and uh, Mm -hmm. trying to make his way in the world. And Batman actually met him when he's stealing, trying to steal the wheels off of the Batmobile, which is actually depicted in the rebirth issue. Yeah. Yeah. In a really great scene. Yeah. And, uh, so he comes on and becomes the second Robin. He is ultimately killed by the Joker. And the history there is actually kind of funny because DC did a poll to have people call in and vote if they wanted Jason Todd to be killed. And I remember this. This was in New 52 or was... No, this was a long no, time ago. This was a long time ago. Yeah. I, I remember hearing about this, though. This was decades ago, you know, oh, okay. before the internet because they used a phone poll, you know. Right. If they did it now, <laughs> they'd have people vote online. But this was, yeah. this was quite some time ago. And people actually voted by a fairly narrow margin to have Jason Todd killed off because I guess people didn't like him very much as Robin. Hmm, okay. He was more impulsive, kind of angrier, from what I understand, as Robin, which plays into who he is now as a character, because he, he was, after his death at the hands of the Joker, which Batman obviously took very hard, and there's kind of an homage to that in Batman v Superman, where you see the old Robin suit with the graffiti on it that says, ha ha ha, jokes on you, Batman, and there have been numerous references and retellings of this classic story where okay. Jason Todd is killed by the Joker, but he was ultimately resurrected via Lazarus Pit, which is the same thing that uh, Ra's al Ghul uses to be immortal, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that character at all. Uh, yeah. And he takes on the Red Hood identity almost in sort of this twist of irony because he was killed by the Joker. He absolutely hates the Joker. And the Red Hood identity is, according to legend, the former identity of the Joker before he became who he is now. So they allude to that a little bit in the issue, but I didn't know much about that. Yeah. So So before he became the Joker, he was the red hood. Well, it's not confirmed. There's no real confirmed concrete origin for the Joker, but if you, if you've read the killing joke, Mm -hmm. there's that kind of origin that's depicted where he's this failed comedian and he falls in with these guys who are going to help him make some money and they stick him in the red hood and have him go and, he falls into the vat of acid and all that. Right. Which, you know, spoilers for Killing Joke, but come on, you've read it. <laughs> if you haven't read it by now, get your head in the game. <laughs> so the resurrected Jason Todd takes on the Red Hood identity, becomes a vigilante, and has some run-ins with Batman very early on. And this is a little bit more recent that they did this. I think it was maybe 90s, early 2000s. But again, mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. Uh And the thing about Jason Todd as the Red Hood is that he is a lot like Batman because he was trained by Batman and he has a lot of the same skills, but he really traditionally has not had reservations about killing people. Yeah. And when he originally returned as the Red Hood, he was mostly just really pissed off at Batman for having not killed the Joker. Right. And he mentions that a little bit in this issue too. Yeah. So... Anyways, I, I love that relationship between them, the kind of like mentor-mentee relationship where Jason really looks up to Batman, but they also have this tension, these disagreements, because Batman has such a strict moral code, and Jason sees that as something that's a little more flexible in terms yeah. of, you know, the ends justify the means, we need to get the job done, we should be protecting people, we should be cleaning up the streets, and 
for people like the Joker, there is no hope for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. You know, Jason Todd just doesn't care. So yeah, I really like the Rebirth issue uh, probably more than number one, to be honest, because I'm so into kind of that sentimental exploration of their relationship as Batman being kind of a father figure to Jason. And we get that and great little, yeah. we get that great little scene where he tries to like, he's, he's stealing the wheels off the Batmobile and then Batman shows up and he's like, thinks he's going to try to fight Batman and Batman just kind of laughs at him and asks him if he's hungry. Yeah. Like the, the issue, uh, first of all, the art on both of these issues is incredible, uh, by Dexter soy. Um, but, that rebirth issue does such a great job of showing Batman is so, so like larger than life. Uh, and it sort of depicted twice when Jason Todd first meets Batman when he's stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. But then later, uh, during the attempted assassination of the mayor, uh, so-called, you know, uh, Batman approaches him and is depicted the same way as just this gigantic, looming, dark figure. Uh, And Jason Todd even says, like, you know, even after all these years, like, my heart starts racing, you know, uh, seeing Batman like this. And so uh, I thought that it was really, from both a writing and artistic standpoint, very successful at showing... Uh, that Jason Todd is still sort of in the shadow of uh, of Batman, even all these years later, uh, and how that's going to carry on to the series as a whole. Yeah, you know, and and his whole character. Yeah, and uh, there's that great part where they're showing the flashback of when he's first training to become Robin, and you're getting his little narration, and he's saying something about even then. I could tell Bruce wasn't sure if I was going to become a hero or something else, mm-hmm. which is sort of the foreshadowing. And then you you t- turn the page and you see Red Hood on his motorcycle firing guns at police officers and, and going to assassinate yeah. the mayor. And it's this beautiful splash page. And he says, all these years later, definitely something else. Yeah. It's all communicated it- so well. It does turn out that he's not actually assassinating the mayor, but trying to cure the mayor of, like, this techno virus or something. Right. Uh, And I think that's going to be, like, uh, it's a good introductory story or a good sort of origin for this Red Hood story because it shows that, like, he's not afraid to be seen as a villain, but what he's actually working for is being the hero, you know? Yeah. Um, And so I think it's a a very clever way of introducing that concept. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, I as someone new, like I said, I, I think like the, the these issues give you everything you need to know about Jason, like as a character. You don't necessarily get to know every detail about his past. Um, but by the end of even just issue one, I felt like I understood who this character was and what he was going to be fighting for. Um, it's a gorgeous book. I mean, there's some gorgeous like spreads um, in in these pages. Uh, that just uh, of both Batman and uh, Jason Todd as Robin, um, some great action scenes. Um, I just really immensely enjoyed this book, and I got to know some like uh, strange characters I did not, I hadn't heard of, like Ma Gunn. Um, there's this cool little story in the in the number one issue about uh, the headmaster at the orphanage where Jason Todd grew up, and he sort of goes back and revisits her. Um, after she's being like attacked. Um, well, what it actually is, is that Bruce originally tried to put him into this home for wayward right. boys. 
not knowing, even though he's the world's greatest detective, which kind of irked me a little bit, <laughs> but whatever. He, he didn't realize that this was actually a, a weird little crime operation where this woman is using these orphans uh, in her, I don't know what she does exactly criminal-wise, but something with drugs, I'm assuming, or just maybe yeah. all-purpose crime. She uses them as kind of her little soldiers, and yeah. ultimately it ends with... Batman having to bust in and, and bust the whole thing up and rescue Jason from it. But I did mm-hmm. like that character. I guess that was something that's been previously used for Jason. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when. And I tried to do a little bit of research to find where Ma Gun had appeared before. And I couldn't really find very much other than just that this was something that was written years ago for Jason. Yeah. Um, well, I like it when writers, especially on number one issues and, and sort of reboots and stuff, go back and sort of revisit their characters' origins from a different angle. You know, I think it's effective at catching up the reader on who this character is, as long as you don't like, you know, it, it can be a pain when they like dwell on it and make the whole issue just a retelling of someone's origin, but this doesn't do that. Yeah. This takes elements of the origin story and sort of flashes back to those elements, but then sort of mirrors them in the present and uh, reutilizes those same uh, elements in the in what the character is doing now. Um and that's a really great way of uh, showing you the growth of the character as well as telling you where they came from. The one thing that irked me about Ma Gun <clears throat> is the fact that ultimately she was busted, sent to prison for some undisclosed number of years, and yeah. then released despite these horrible crimes. You'd think that she'd probably be in prison for the rest of her life, which doesn't seem like it'd be very much because she's I mean, it's Gotham super City. old. But Everyone's getting out of prison all the time. Okay, sure, fine. I can live with that. <laughs> but then, in addition to her getting out of prison, the state is apparently allowing her to reopen her foster care home. Yeah, that that's true. That's a little bit of a stretch that she's like immediately like, yeah, I'm going to reopen the school and retrain all these uh, or reopen the, the home and retrain all these child sol- soldiers again. Right. And the state is apparently like, well, OK, she says she's not going to be bad anymore. I guess we'll let her try again. You know, I think we've cracked the code for why Gotham has so many villain problems. You know, they're very it's trusting. The state. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they keep just assuming everyone's rehabilitated and yeah. like, sure, go back to doing what you're doing. I'm sure you'll be less evil about it this time. But whatever, I guess. I mean, it's comic books, so. It's comic books. I uh, really liked that classic pairing of Red Hood and Black Mask, which you probably don't know, but that's something that's kind of been a little bit recurring in okay. various forms of, of Batman lore is Red Hood going up against Black Mask. Okay. And I think I do like the mask. He looks cool. The character design is cool. Oh, really? I was going to talk about how I don't like it. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't have anything to compare it to, but I thought it was kind of uh, a cool look. If you go and look at Black Mask from, say, Arkham Origins, Mm -hmm. which is a game, uh, as well as, you know, many other comic book interpretations of his design, that is what I like to see for Black Mask. I, okay. I don't really like this weird S&M dominatrix looking thing they have going on. Yeah, very, very uh, the gimp from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand what they're doing there. I mean, for, for his little henchmen to have those is one thing, and I was like, yeah, I can live with that. Yeah, but, but like him himself actually has his mouth like zippered shut. Yeah, and it just, it, I don't know, it looks really stupid to me. Okay. 
But I just thought it was a good kind of foil to the Red Hood's costume with his like just simplistic sort of uh, red skin kind of covering. Yeah. Well, traditionally, Black Mask has been more of like just a black skull face. Okay. Which I prefer. I don't know why yeah. they. I don't know why they had to try to reinvent the wheel on this. Oh, well, I think they're redesigning everyone again for as part of the rebirth thing. I'm cool, I guess, with the False Face Society, his henchmen having those weird masks in a way, because it, I thought it was kind of interesting how he ultimately executes a bunch of guys. You'll as you yeah, he kills remember. a lot of his own people. Yeah, and I, it took me a second to figure out like what is he doing? Because he has like a little button in his hand and he presses it, and then the next panel just shows all the guys laying down on the ground and their heads are like just bloody messes. And I yeah. think he must have some kind of thing wired into the masks that they wear so that he can just crush their heads when he wants to. Yeah, that's what it kind of looks like. I didn't pick up on, on that at first. I, I, too, was like, I don't really know what just happened, but it looks like he killed them somehow, you know? At but first, it doesn't I, make sense that he would build something into the masks. At first, I thought it was like a Suicide Squad thing where he had bombs implanted in their heads or something, but that, yeah. why would they do that? So I think it is the, it's the masks, which is kind of cool, I guess. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but really, I mean, really great action, really cinematic, like the scene where he crashes the train, um, at the end, like just looks really cool. Um, really well laid out panels some great gorgeous shots of like Gotham city laid out. Um, I love that his hideout is like a bomb shelter underneath a police station. Um, and, uh, that that's really cool, and he's got all those screens laid out while he just sits down there and he like eats burgers, um, just really cool. I like it's a, it's a bunch of really cool little ideas that kind of add up to create a really coherent atmosphere uh, for this book. Yeah, and to go back to the rebirth issue because we we're kind of on number one right now. But mm-hmm. speaking of good action sequences that we've seen so far. I think that quick little action sequence where he goes toe to toe with Batman and in the rebirth issue was really cool too. Yeah. And he like fires the gun at the ground and there's the narration caption at the top that says something about how he's got more experience now than he had when he was a kid. And as he's, he's firing the gun at the ground to make Batman jump because he knows he won't hit him. He's just forcing Batman to kind of dance so he can get the upper hand for a second. And Mm -hmm. he's saying like, can we talk about this later? And Batman's like, no. And, (laughs) It's, yeah. it's just kind of like it's kind of like cute like he's being kind of like cute and and tongue in cheek with them yeah while i mean i think what going like at the, like this really hardcore combat it's just it's a really cool little take on their relationship yeah i think one of the most successful things about the issue is how well it uh immediately establishes what their relationship is like. Um, and it actually ends with that really kind of touching part where uh, shortly after Jason becomes Robin, they're taking a, a photo together. And Alfred says it's for him because Alfred likes to get sentimental about yeah. these things. Um, and Batman's like, we're doing it serious. And he's like, no, should we do it sexy? And Batman's like, no, we're doing it serious. But then you see the picture and you can see like, you know, Jason's got this big smile on his face, but even Batman's got a little bit of like this very kind of subtle smile. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was, it was really sweet and it was, it was a funny scene. Um, but also kind of allows the issue to end on this really kind of sweet emotional note. Um, and so I'm excited to read more of this book. Yeah. And I think they are going back now to number one. I think they're using black mask really well. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't like his design, I think all of his his dialogue and what he's revealing about his motivation when he talks about Gotham's 
comparing his relationship with Gotham to a romantic relationship and talking about mm-hmm. Gotham's past suitors as in different yeah, crime that was bosses. Really, really effective monologue. And he shows, you know, it shows Bane fighting Killer Croc and he's talking about how past rulers of Gotham has used have used it as a ring for a never ending boxing boxing, ring, yeah. boxing match. Yeah. And he's saying that's no way to treat a lady and and then uh Or like there's even uh he says uh like they've used her as a doormat and it shows the penguin yeah walking along. Yeah. 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 So I, I like where that's going. I really don't have any complaints about this book overall. Yeah. Me neither. Um, so check out, uh, if you're, uh, I know we kind of spoiled it, but it's only issue number one. So there's still a lot more to happen. Um, check out Red Hood and the Outlaws number one and the rebirth issue. We're probably going to be talking about this series or this, yeah, the series again on this podcast. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, with this book, there isn't really even anything to spoil at this point. It's so new. Yeah. It's just starting. It's mostly what it's given us is background. Right. Um, which isn't spoiling too much. And it's setting up this story arc where. Red Hood is going to become part of Black Mask's operation as an undercover agent working with Batman. Yeah, but Batman is very skeptical of it. And Batman's kind of saying, like, if you go in too deep or if you kill even one person, I'm pulling you out, you know? Right. Um, and so I think it's going to... It's setting up a nice sort of, like, uh, pull on Jason Todd where he's going get, to be getting pulled towards the blast, Black Mask side of things and getting embedded further in the crime and then Batman's going to be pulling him the other way uh, which is going to make for some good sort of character tension. Yeah. Um, moving on to our other in-depth book. Uh, we've got Vote Loki, number three. Oh! Uh, let's talk a little bit about what Vote Loki is. It is not a core Marvel title. Uh, it is... Just sort of this weird little mini-series that they've got going about Loki, uh, of course, the villain from the first Avengers film um, and the Thor films, uh, running for president. Uh, And it's very clearly a Donald Trump uh, allegory um, because he is lying. He is, uh, you know, uh, a supervillain. Um, but he, he's basically very charming and says what people want to hear. And so he is currently winning against, uh, the other two presidential candidates. Um, so it's, it's very much a satire. Uh, it's funny and also very depressing at the, at the same time. Um, in this issue we see, uh, there is a reporter. I think, oh, let me, if I can just interject here, I think the saddest thing about it is that I even feel the effects of his charisma and his seduction. You you would vote Loki? Like even, uh, I mean, I wouldn't because that's insane, (laughs) but (laughs) even I find myself wanting to like him because he's so seductive. Yeah. Let me give a quick shout out to the creative team. We got uh, Christopher Hastings uh, writing it, Langdon Foss on art, uh, colors by Chris Chukri and Rochelle Rosenberg, and lettering by Travis Lanham. Um so in this issue, uh, we have this uh, reporter named Nisa Contreras who is sort of trying to expose Loki uh, and and kill his campaign, but nothing she's really writing seems to be working, even though she's uncovered sort of all these terrible things about him. So what she finally does this time is she uh, tracks him to Latveria, which is uh, Dr. Doom's um, 
home country. And they're sort of using Latveria as sort of a substitute for the Middle East uh, in this book where Dr. Doom has disappeared. And so we've got these warring sort of terrorist or uh, fighting factions kind of fighting for control of Latveria. Um, and Loki says in a debate with the other candidates that he believes in a peaceful solution. He does not want to send any troops there. He doesn't want any violence there. Um, but then Nisa finds him there uh, basically influencing this battle between two of those violent factions and causing them to blow each other up. Um, and she catches this and she gets it on film and she publishes this report and, uh, she's on the plane back to the United States and she hears everyone saying, Oh, I can't believe this. I won't vote for him anymore. You know, he lied to us. He's, he's a supervillain. He always will be. But then by the time she lands in the United States, the media has, uh, the media and Loki has spun it so that like, he did the fighting so our troops don't have to. He's a hero. And everyone's, you know, back on his side again. Because he does say during the debate that he doesn't want to have to commit any American troops to yeah. the conflict because he doesn't want to lose any more American lives over all of this senseless violence. Right. So he thinks by going in there and essentially, though, he he straight up, you know, blows up to opposing factions, you know, um, and... You know, uh, it's a very violent and sort of disturbing thing that happens in the uh, in the book. Uh, but he's able to spin it, you know, in his in his direction. And it's, um, it's it's funny because you keep seeing everything that comes his way that looks bad, including an article yeah. that Nisa writes about him in an earlier issue. Yeah, he manages to get it, you know, to spin it and actually work in his favor. Right, and. But, you know, for all this kind of dark stuff that's happening in Liberia, there's also a lot of really funny scenes, like this one at the beginning of him going to, like, a state fair in the Midwest, and they present to him, like, this ice cream cone with a burger on top of it and onion rings and a caramel apple and, like, uh, and show him, like, eating it and making jokes at this county fair. Uh, And so it's all just so sort of bizarre and funny and depressing and uh but how, what have you thought of the series because we haven't actually talked about the series together yet um and i know this is one i recommended for you and you have read the first three issues now uh what are you thinking about it overall i like it i feel like it's a little bit predictable like i get a little bit yeah. bored reading it sometimes because i'm just like there's not really a, a plot that's advancing. It's kind of just like more right. of the same, like, oh, Loki's at it again. He's running for it, president. and he's. It's sort of like when people say like a movie is like a, an SNL sketch stretched out too long. Yeah. Like this is kind of like we've got this like one idea and they're just kind of playing with it for a few issues. You yeah, know? which is fine, especially because, as you said, it's only going to be six or so issues long. Yeah. Let's see if I can find out how many right now. And I love the very premise and idea of the whole thing. My biggest complaint about it, which, you know, is really just personal opinion. I'm not big on the art in this one. It's uh it's interesting because the art I was surprised when I saw the name on it because it looks like yeah, it's Langdon Foss, but it looks a lot like Ramon Villalobos, uh, who is a very notable uh, comic book artist that kind of has the same style where it's like, it's very sort of a uh, pencil, sort of like rough edges kind of style. Um, 
and, and, and there's not nothing for everybody. Yeah, there's nothing not wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not really my taste. It's to me, it's it feels kind of hokey and cartoony. Yeah, it's very cartoony. Yeah, and um, especially because we're dealing with such a kind of grounded. I mean, I, I guess it's not totally grounded because it's a god running for president, but it's still dealing with like politics and issues that we are dealing with in our everyday lives right now in this current election cycle. And so it feels like the art should be a little bit more grounded to me. Yeah, I can see that. Um, It does look like it's only going to be four issues. It looks like the final issue comes out September 21st. Okay. So at least they're not going to overextend. You know, this this would be a series that it would be easy to overstay its welcome, but I think four issues is just about right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, overall, I like it. I think it's funny. Uh, I like how he's got, I don't, who is Angela? Angela, I am not, I haven't been reading Angela's solo book and I haven't gotten into her a whole bunch, but I believe she is Thor and Loki's sister. So she, Um, she is a god. She is a god. She is Asgardian. I believe she was actually created by Neil Gaiman when he wrote Marvel. I find it hilarious that her name is just Angela. Yeah, that's a weird thing about her. And, and I, I, I thought when I read it that it was just like Loki was kind of like just pretending like she's a normal person. Like that wasn't her real name and that's just what Loki was calling her for, right. for like political purposes or whatever. Um, and, and every nope, time it's like... it's just Angela. Every time she appears, she's just like this very kind of surreal looking godly figure and... You know, Nisa will be like, oh, Angela, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. funny to me. It's it's interesting. I'm just looking up now a little bit about her because, like I said, I haven't followed her much. But she actually, she was created by Neil Gaiman in the book Spawn, which oh. is a creator-owned book, which is not Marvel. Huh. Uh, she showed up in Spawn, and then he brought her over. Uh, there was sort of a uh, legal battle about who owned it, and it turns out Gaiman did. And uh, he sold the rights to the character to Marvel. Okay. Neil Gaiman just sold the rights to Angela to Marvel, and they put her into the Age of Ultron story in 2013. I've just kind of been using her ever since. So she has her own sort of solo book, but uh, I've never really gotten too much into her history, but it looks like just recently she was revealed to be the lost sister of Thor. So do you think that means, by extension, that everything that happened in the Spawn stories is actually <laughs> contained within the Marvel Universe? I don't think so. I think legally it can't be. <laughs> So we're to just interpret Angela here as this variant form, this this different uh, this different kind of incarnation of her in a in a separate universe. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, parallel versions, I guess. We're getting to the bottom of the important issues, the things, the questions that you, <laughs> the listeners, need resolved. I when you started this episode, I know you were thinking, "Man, I hope they tackle the relationship between the Spawn universe and the Marvel universe." Right. And we've got the answers for you. So yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else really much to say about Vote Loki. It's good. Uh, I recommend picking it up. Yeah, it's. I think if you are someone who, like everyone in America, is very frustrated with this election cycle, it's kind of a nice release to. Uh, see it sort of mirrored in like a, a, a kind of a funny superhero book. Yeah, let, I guess um, let me amend my recommendation. I will say if you're someone who's feeling cynical about politics and you enjoy reading that kind of political satire, 
kind of like what we see a lot of the time in, in things like South Park, mm-hmm. this, this is probably something you'll enjoy. Yeah, but with less uh, talking and singing turds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So those are our in-depth books for this week. Uh, we're going to move on, I guess, now to our final segment of the show, which is called Topics. Uh, every episode, uh, we're going to alternate either myself or Chris is going to pick sort of a uh, nerd culture-related topic and sort of talk about it. And one thing that uh, we had been talking about uh, together recently is what happened to the X-Men. What happened to the X-Men? Because X-Men, for me, growing up, X-Men was the the pivotal, the quintessential Marvel title. They were the superheroes. Yeah. That, the X-Men. To me, yeah. like when I was a kid... I felt like the Marvel universe sort of revolved around the X-Men. Like the X-Men were at the center and everything else was kind of like an extension of that. You would have X-Men arcade games, uh, X-Men video games. You had the X-Men cartoon series. Yeah, I remember was the tremendously popular animated series that I watched when I was young. Oh, absolutely. And I remember playing, you know, with my friends as like a, a kid in the woods and pretending we, we would all pick which X-Men we were. And everybody wanted to be Wolverine, but only one yeah. person could. So it was always like the cool kid. Not me. I wanted to be Iceman. Iceman oh, forever. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, but what happened to them? Because it seems like in comics now, uh, like when I was recommending books to Chris, I didn't have any X-Men books to recommend. Um, and a lot of people... I uh, don't really know what's going on uh, with them in the comics. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about a lot of the conspiracy theories that are out there. Cons- about uh, Wow, conspiracy There are theories. some conspiracy theories out there on what happened with the X-Men. Huh. Uh, but let's, let's start out with kind of summarizing the X-Men's history. Um, when most people think about the X-Men, what they're thinking about is Chris Claremont's run uh, of the X-Men, which is 16 years that he was in control of the X-Men at Marvel. What year was it? Uh, this was 1975 to 1991. Oh, man, I, um, I thought I had a gotcha question. I did my research. I You might get me later, but uh, I did I did my research. Um, the X-Men, of course, were started in the 60s by Stan Lee um, with the core team of Cyclops, Jean Grey, Iceman, uh, Beast, and Angel. Um, and they were they were popular at first, but after a few years, the title sort of uh, stopped selling, um, and it really didn't sell well. I think it, it went down to being published only once every two months, um, and so so was that go ahead before Ultimate Universe. The, the oh, de- I mean decline of X Men was that before Ultimate Universe became a thing? I'm talking right now about the late '60s. Uh, okay. The decline of the X Men in the late '60s. Yeah, okay, okay, this was okay. like, yeah, it was just a few years of popularity when they first debuted, and then started getting unpopular again. And then they brought on Chris Claremont to kind of take over, and he sort of overnight sort of revitalized the series by introducing new characters. Uh, he replaced the entire original team with a new team of Wolverine and Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm, um, Banshee. Uh, just, you know, characters that still to this day are sort of like defining X-Men and that he brought in, some of which were created by him and some of which weren't. But then he went on to write the series until 1991, and he introduced a lot of important characters um, like, let's just go down a list, Rogue, Psylocke, Kitty Pride, Mystique, Emma Frost, Jubilee, um, Sabretooth, uh, Mr. Sinister, Gambit. Uh, these were all Chris Claremont creations. So roughly um, what era was that? 
so this was 75 to 91 that okay. he was introducing these characters. He did uh, very important story arcs like the Phoenix Saga, the Dark Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, um, what else? Uh, Inferno. So when people think of the X-Men, what they're really thinking of is Chris Claremont's run. Like that, Chris Claremont and the X-Men after that really kept Marvel afloat when they were on the verge of bankruptcy, when their other books weren't selling. The X-Men throughout the 80s and 90s were very rock-solid, reliable. It's what led to the animated series, which was based mostly on on Claremont's run. Um, And he sort of defined it. He brought in a lot of uh, strong female characters into the story, a lot of literary themes, um, a lot of sort of recurring villains. Um, uh, The Hellfire Club was another invention of his. Um, and so he, he really sort of built the X-Men empire. Um, now in the years since there's been a lot of really great runs on X-Men, X-Men continued to be popular all throughout the nineties. Um, but recently it hasn't, which is weird because since 2000, there have been a whole ton of X-Men related movies. Uh, the original X-Men trilogy, we've got two Wolverine movies, another on the way, days of future past, um, Apocalypse just came out this year, uh, Deadpool. Um, So people are talking about all the X-Men movies, what's happened in the comic books. And so now I want to touch on some of the conspiracy theories before I get into what's actually happening. First, can I just ask real quick, do you like like the X-Men movies? Intermittently, yes. I think Fox, Fox's movies, Fox's like superhero movies, particularly the X-Men films, have been really great at fan service while not entirely great at building stories that help define the characters. Um, And what I mean by that is like, I feel like the strength of the Marvel Studios movies are that they create these movies that really embody the character and really embody themes for for those characters, uh, whether it's Captain America or Iron Man. They do a really great job of, because they created the characters, they hire writers that can really write stories for them. While I think Fox tends to hire fans of those characters, and so you get movies that really uh, pay excellent fan service, like Deadpool, and he's quipping, and he's breaking the fourth wall, and he's eating chimichangas, but does the story really represent who Deadpool is as a character, and does it give me a satisfying Deadpool story? I don't know if I would go that far. Okay. Um, so that's kind of, and some some movies are better than others. X two, of course, fantastic film. I still really like the first X Men movie. Um, I thought the second Wolverine film was very was very great. But then you got some low points like Wolverine Origins and X three and stuff like that. So yeah, we don't really talk about. Um, but the there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that Marvel is intentionally trying to kill the X Men because Fox has the film rights. Um. A lot of people think that because Fox has the rights to both Fantastic Four and the X-Men, Marvel wants them back. They want them back in the X-Men cinem- uh, cinematic, or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so they are trying to kill the franchises to limit box office draw to these movies. Uh, and in fact, last year they canceled the Fantastic Four series entirely, um, although they were able to justify it pretty well story-wise. Um, but there is no current Fantastic Four series. 
And now with the complete bombing of the Fantastic Four reboot, it looks like Marvel may be getting those rights back if they haven't already. I think there's some rumors out there that maybe they've gotten it back. But the X-Men movies are still crazy popular. And there's still enough X-Men fans that they could never just X you know, axe the book from their shelves. And in fact, to Marvel's credit, they have about six X-Men books going right now. But still, the the rumor persists that a few years ago, a memo went out to X-Men writers saying that they're, they could no longer create any new mutant characters. No more mutant characters. If you were going to make a new character, uh, you could give them a different origin story, or better yet, you can make them an inhuman. And so the rumor is that Marvel is trying to push the Inhumans instead of mutants as the next big Marvel thing and sort of replace the mutants with Inhumans. Now, Inhumans, because a lot of people still don't know about the Inhumans, and if you don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or read any Inhuman comics, you might not know, they are sort of a race that was uh, that has developed sort of independent of humanity, sort of like cloistered away in their own group, uh, and they are human Cree hybrids, I believe. I think the Cree is like this alien race that came down millions of years ago and sort of made these hybrid human creatures uh, who grow up as normal humans, but until they are exposed to this chemical called pterogen. And when you're exposed to this chemical as an inhuman, you develop powers. And sometimes these are a curse. Sometimes these are things that like cripple you or you know uh, can end up killing you. And sometimes they're superhero powers. Um, and in they've always, they've been around since like the '60s, uh, mostly as Fantastic Four characters. But in the last decade, Marvel has really made a push to make them their own franchise, and they've integrated them into the Marvel Agents of Shield TV show. They've got an Inhumans movie scheduled for I think release in 2020. There are like two or three Inhumans books right now on the shelves, and there I, I mean I will say in support of the conspiracy theories, I don't think there was much demand for it. You know, I don't think people have been clamoring for this huge Inhumans uh, resurgence. I will admit there's some interesting stuff going on, but I still don't really care about the Inhumans as a whole. But it does give, if the if the conspiracy theories are true, it allows Marvel to create new mutant-like characters, people that grow up average people until they suddenly develop powers and are, you know, hated or ostracized for it without making them mutants and retain the rights well, and to these. I think the theory that they're trying to kind of push in humans as the new mutants makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I haven't watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but you just mentioned that uh, anyone who has probably knows about Inhumans, so I'm assuming yeah. they're pivotal to that show. Yeah, they're a big deal in the TV show. And then in the comics, we've got uh, all these things going on with Civil War II that center around Ulysses. Yep, the Inhuman, and a lot of a lot of the new popular heroes, like Miss Marvel, she's an Inhuman. A lot of the new heroes are turning out to be Inhumans. In fact, I believe they just retconned Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch's backstory to make them not mutants anymore. Okay, I don't know if they made them Inhumans. I'd have to look it up, but I know they just you know made it so that those two giant mutant characters aren't mutants. They uh, they will always be Magneto's children in my heart. Yeah, for everyone, I think you know. It's I don't think it's a retcon that is going over well with a lot of people. Were they was oh was that their origin primary to previous to uh, Ultimate Universe too? Yeah, okay. yeah. Is that they were Magneto's uh, children? Because they're not in the in the films. No, because they can't because Marvel doesn't 
now they are in the X-Men films. Uh, Scarlet Witch isn't in it, but Quicksilver, it's revealed in X-Men Apocalypse, is Magneto's son. Okay. Um, but in the Marvel films, of course, they can't be because they don't have the rights to Magneto. Okay. So there's a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes drama going on that, you know, we can't speak to officially. Who knows how much of it is true, how much of it isn't. Let's just talk about where the books are right now. Sure. Um, it's, it's tough to be an X-Men fan right now. A lot of the books are really underserving the characters. I think for a lot of people, the last really good X-Men series was Astonishing X-Men, which started in 2004. Um... Go for it. Do you, <laughs> I, you can't see this on the podcast, but he was raising his finger, and I knew he had something to say. <laughs> well, so uh, I, so do you think that the fact that the, the X-Men books that are coming out right now, they're not very good, do you think that this ties into the conspiracy that Marvel is actually, they are f- kind of feel f- obligated to continue releasing X-Men books because people want them, but they are sabotaging them and making sure that they're not very good so that they can I, kind of wean people off of them. I don't think so because they keep putting talented writers on them. And there are actually, I'm going to get to, there are two X-Men books right now well, that maybe I can strongly that's just recommend. A, maybe that's just what they want you to think. Sure, maybe. But they do have, they had Brian Michael Bendis on there for a few years, who's kind of Marvel's star writer. They've got Jeff Lemire on the primary title now. Um, They've got good writers on there. Uh, I think it's what they're doing overall for mutants uh, that's hurting the titles. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Um, But I I think the last great uh, X-Men series for everyone was Astonishing X-Men, which came out in 2004 and was written by Joss Whedon, who directed Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, and is best known for doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly. Uh, he wrote X-Men for a while. And one of the caveats of his run was that he is, was not going to write any crossover tie-ins. His run was independent of Civil War and any whatever big crossovers Marvel was pushing. His X-Men title was independent of that. I, I, can, and, di- I can dig that. There needs to be a few yeah. of those. Yeah. And after his his run ended, it was taken up by Warren Ellis, who is a legendary uh, comic book writer. Uh, and they introduced a lot of new characters, a lot of new organizations, uh, really had this fantastic run. Uh, which brings us to the recent years, which... I think a big problem with the series right now is that Marvel keeps giving the X-Men reasons to go extinct. They keep treating the X-Men as like these martyrs. Uh, It started after House of M when Scarlet Witch said, no more mutants. And all of a sudden, like something like 90% of the mutant population lost their powers. So you don't mean they're the... Not the X-Men specifically going extinct. Just mutants. Mutants, okay. Mutants, yeah. Uh, And so they all lost their powers. Then gradually some people repowered and the mutants started growing again. Uh, And then we had this whole big uh, Avengers versus X-Men crossover where uh, Cyclops ends up killing Professor Xavier and then he has this like team of villain X-Men. And then most recently what's been happening is this we talked about these Terrigen myths with the Inhumans uh, and how it makes them cause their powers. Well, it's been revealed that these Terrigen myths kill mutants. They give them like a cancer that kills them. Isn't and that this, convenient? Right. And this Terrigen cloud has been unveiled or has been released upon the earth and is just going around. And every time it comes in contact with a mutant, they can get this disease that kills them. So quite literally in the X-Men books right now, the Inhumans are killing the mutants. Uh, 
they're not actually murdering them, but this cloud that they use to gain their powers is poisonous to mutants. So there's this sort of uh, tension and there's no cure for it. And so I think Marvel has just lost track of what to do with them. I think they're trying to turn them into like these martyrs of their race. Uh, and it just puts this kind of heavy pall on it that people are sick of. You know, we want to see them being heroes. We want to see uh, them, you know, uh, we want to see the characters that we love, you know, uh, and not just see everyone fighting off constant death. You know, it, it's sort of a, a heavy pall to put on things. And the other thing that I think a lot of writers are missing with the X-Men right now is that they're writing the X-Men as a team and not as individuals. So you'll have like a book like Extraordinary X-Men that has a lot of great X-Men characters on it, but they're writing it like, oh, this is a team that fights and this person thinks they're the leader. And then, but you know, maybe this person thinks they're the leader and then they disagree about this and then they split up. But no one's writing the individual characters really well. No one's being like, this is who Nightcrawler is. This is who Storm is. Let's let them be themselves and work together. And maybe, of course, they butt heads. That's The X-Men always have. But it's, it's motivated by character. And it's motivated by who they are and where they've come from. And I feel like a lot of writers have kind of lost that right now. And also, I think what might be going on is there's a huge reliance on revisiting previous X-Men stories. Uh, And this might be, you know, related to the secret memo about not creating new mutant characters, but writers seem to be constantly going back to the wells of Apocalypse and the Hellfire Club and the Morlocks and, like, all these sort of basically retelling previous X-Men stories which, first of all, can be alienating to new readers who, don't, who didn't necessarily read those stories, but also for people that do know them can feel like you know, old ground that's being tread maybe not as well as it was the first time. Because they um, don't want new readers to read the stories, and yeah. they don't want the old readers to read them either. Yeah. Case and closed. It is, I think, there was controversy that when... Marvel's fall lineup was revealed. There's not too many X-Men books on it, at least not as many as there are right now. Um, So with all of that sort of said, um, and me sort of ragging on X-Men titles for the last few years, there are two bright spots right now. And if you are an X-Men fan, I recommend you check out both of them. And those titles are All New X-Men and X-Men 92. All New X-Men is interesting because, first of all, amazing writer Dennis Hopeless, um, who is taking on the original team of X-Men. So the story is just like normal, like the word hopeless. Yeah. That's, is that, do you think that's his real name? I don't think so, but I think you would really like a lot of his stories. He is most famous for this story called Avengers Academy, which is about this young team of Avengers, which then turned into, uh, a book that was basically battle Royale for young Avengers, where they were like on an Island with arcade and had to kill each other. Yikes. Uh, so, He's he's really great at writing character dynamics, which is what X-Men is all about, writing strong characters that interact with each other in a very real way. Um, and what the conceit of all new X-Men is is that the original X-Men from the 60s, young Iceman, young Beast, Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Angel have been brought into the present, and they can't go back. So he's following these young X-Men, plus a couple new ones like uh, X-23 and Kid Apocalypse, um, as they are growing up, in the present day, uh, 
and they're still teens, you know, and he's writing the characters really well. He's writing their struggles really well. Uh, one of the big reveals uh, last year was that young Iceman, who brought to the present, was revealed to be gay, um, which conversely implied that present-day Iceman has been in the closet since the 60s. Um, Didn't he but- date... Uh, oh, no, I'm thinking of... See, everything I know about X-Men is, like, all ultimate universe yeah. stuff like i was gonna say didn't he date kitty pride but well i think he did in the main universe too and oh, okay. he's always kind of been sort of a womanizer kind of ladies man character and i think they sort of retcon that to be him sort of overcompensating for uh his closeted homosexuality uh, but they're handling that really well in all new x-men uh as well as a lot of other character dynamics so if you like the x-men and you like that original team all new x-men is really fantastic um and hopefully it doesn't go away anytime soon um, the other great X-Men title is X-Men 92. I don't know how long this is going to be here to stay, but it is essentially a continuation of the X-Men animated series from the 90s. Um, the 92 is for 1992, uh, and it takes all the characters from the original cartoon series and the same sort of colorful aesthetic, uh, introduces some new mutants that were, uh, that came into the comic afterwards and just tells isolated X-Men stories about them being at the mansion with Professor Xavier and getting into these epic, you know, battles uh, with some classic characters. And it's been a lot of fun. It's isolated from all the Civil War II nonsense that's going on. It's isolated from the Terrigen nonsense. It takes place in its own world in Westchester in 1992. Um, And it's been a lot of fun. There was like a guest appearance from the Flaming Lips in the last issue uh, because it's trying to firmly plant itself in the early 90s. Um, And... If that's your X-Men, if your X-Men is the original animated series X-Men, check out this book because it's a lot of fun. Um, okay. I'm hoping they that the X-Men come back strong because uh, it doesn't look like they're getting the rights back anytime soon. Fox is still raking in money hand over fist from the X-Men. Uh, so sucks. Marvel, you're not getting those rights back anytime soon. We still love the X-Men. If you are sh- killing them, stop doing it. Uh, if it's just a matter of maybe some great writers making some bad choices with the characters, um, no, you know what? I don't, I don't care if that's what they're doing because I feel like eventually it could work. And if it takes 20 or 30 years for Marvel to get the rights to X-Men back and then we finally (laughs) get a good X-Men movie, because I'll be honest, I have not enjoyed them. I think they're just corny and blah, uh, so if if that's what it takes, if they have to kill the X-Men for 20 years and then they finally get the rights back and they're like, ha, ah, we were just kidding. X-Men are awesome still. And we get a good <laughs> X-Men movie. Uh, that's fine. I just want to, I want to see one, one good, you know, breathtaking X-Men film before I die. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we don't know. We don't know if any of that is confirmed, but what is confirmed is that the X-Men titles right now are pretty underwhelming. Okay. Um, But check out all new X-Men. Check out X-Men 92. And uh, keep reading the good X-Men books because, you know, hopefully if people keep reading them, then Marvel will realize that people want want them and will at least have one or two really good core title X-Men books that are top-notch. And they'll stop trying to kill them. Jesus, stop trying to make the X-Men go extinct. We're sick of it. (laughs) All right, because, yeah, because, of course... They are listening to this podcast as, yeah. as most people are these days. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up for us. Mm-hmm. I want to thank everybody who has listened to the end here. And if you have any 
ideas or, or anything that you'd like to hear us talk about, feel free to tweet at Dalton. I'm going to go ahead and plug Dalton's Twitter, Dalton, yeah. at, at Dalton DeShane. Um, yeah, tweet at me. Let me know uh, if there's any books you want us to cover, if there's any books you want us to talk about, if there's a style of book you want a recommendation for, and we'll try to talk about it here on the podcast. Or if you want us to talk about Nintendo games. Yeah. Or, or uh, any other, anything else. Movies, TV n- shows. Nint- Nintendo games that are coming out for iOS, maybe. Ooh, yeah. Super Mario Run. Well, we should give an in-depth review when it comes out for the holidays. I don't know if I'm going to like it. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that, but I'm looking forward to giving it giving it a shot. Well, that's why we need to have a review show for it. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for this week. Um, We'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Um, Until then, uh, I'm Dalton. I'm Chris. And this has been Pretty Much Obsessed. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.